Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have a very special interview with John Shipton, the father of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And as many of you know, Julian is currently in the UK fighting extradition to the US where he could face up to 170 years in prison for 18 charges, including attempted hacking and breaches of the Espionage Act. Assange founded WikiLeaks in 2006 as an organisation specialising in the publishing of leaked materials, perhaps best known from the 2010 Chelsea Manning leaks, Chelsea being a US Army soldier who turned whistleblower and released a number of documents via WikiLeaks, including the now infamous collateral murder video. I had the opportunity to sit down with John in London and we discussed his relationship with Julian, the ongoing extradition case and WikiLeaks global impact. I do hope you enjoy this interview. If you have any feedback or questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. But before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good morning, John. Good morning, Peter. It's uh, good to be with you here uh, and uh, amongst the McCormack gang. Yeah, it's, a, it's an Irish name, actually. Uh, Some people think it's Scottish, but it's an Irish an name. Irish name. It's yeah. an Irish name. My yeah. father's Irish. He he's actually in Donegal now. He retired back to Ireland. In Donegal. Yeah, in yeah. Donegal. My mother's Irish uh, Kelly family. Okay. But the, I believe the Kellys are like Smiths. You know, they're simply everywhere. They are. There's a lot of there's a lot of Kellys in Ireland. And if your mother was Siobhan Kelly, that would be a, a hell of an Irish name. Ah, uh, she have uh, Miriam actually. Miriam. Oh, Miriam. That's a good name. Miriam Veldon Kelly. My son is Connor McCormack, which is about... Uh, Connor, yeah, that's it. That slips right in, solidly Irish, yeah. Well, thank you for coming today. You're obviously very busy. You've obviously got a lot on. There's a lot I want to cover with you. I'm I'm conscious of not trying to interview Julian via you. I want this to be an interview with you. If I slip into some of that, I apologise, but um, I do want to know more about you. I do think before we start talking about Julian and the case and where we're at with this... Um, is it will be important for people who listen to this just to know a, a very small amount of the background because you don't share a surname with Julian. So rather than I explain it, if you can just give a, a very brief explanation of uh, your relationship as 
Julian's uh, biological father. That would be helpful. Uh, okay. Um, well, uh, Julian, his mum, Christine, married a friend of mine, Brett Assange, and set up a, a, a little family. And that liaison, I think, from memory lasted uh, eight years. Uh, and uh, Julian had a, a warm relationship with Brett, uh, as did I. Fantastic. That's good to know. And uh, you have a very close relationship with Julian now. You're here in the UK supporting him. But it'd be nice to know a little bit about yourself, John. I, I, I've read that you're a anti-war activist. But just tell me a bit about yourself. Let me understand you as a person as well. Oh, well, you know, I was in the building industry most of my life and then uh, as I became more experienced, uh, uh, moved into organisational roles. I studied uh, architecture at the University of New South Wales for a couple of years and then uh, moved uh, on to more work, overwhelmed by uh, offers of work and uh, opportunities to uh, work in the building industry, so I just went on with that. Um, as for activism, uh, I, I've always uh, felt uh, nauseated by state cruelty and realised pretty early on that um, now wars are declared against civil populations. Um, this is a sort of a foul circumstance that needs resistance. Um, so the bombing campaigns of the Second World War illustrate to us that in Churchill's words, the German public needs to feel or must feel the pressure of war. I think that that's um, an unsatisfactory circumstance, so... Uh, I have uh, put a lot of energy into resisting uh, wars and uh, the final one, the uh, Iraq war, the invasion of Iraq has murdered a million and a half people. So it's clear to us that we've become barbaric. I'm not a pacifist, that if, if you want peace, you must be prepared to fight. However, that doesn't include barbarity of declaring war on civil populations uh, and murdering as many people as a matter of policy and destroying infrastructure as a matter of policy and siege um, sanctions as a matter of policy which murdered uh, half a million children in Iraq before the 2003 invasion. So that's a really a soul-felt, fundamental attitude of mind that courage in men allows them to defend their homes and fight other organisations which wish to plunder their homes. But it does not include the slaughter of innocents in any way whatsoever. I mean, I could 
probably sit here and interview you for hours on that subject alone. Um, it's a fascinating subject. Many areas I wrestle with myself, but as you said before we started recording, you, you have a job at the moment, and it's quite interesting that you refer to it as a job, and that is to support and secure the freedom of Julian. So we will focus on that, and perhaps another time, perhaps after Julian is freed, we'd hope that you and I would maybe have a chance to sit down and, and discuss something else. But how is Julian now? Uh, well, he's on medication. Um, his circumstances are constrained in as much as that he has controlled moves throughout the prison. He's in a maximum security prison. He spends mm, 20 hours a day in his cell. This is an improvement upon the circumstance previously where he was in a hospital ward with two debilitated and mad people and spending up to 23 hours a day in his cell. This improvement came about, extraordinary it is, it came about from a petition from the prisoners, three petitions in fact came uh, from the prisoners in order that he be moved out of a circumstance of no society into a ward of 40 other prisoners. Because without any access to society, that can affect your mental health. And my assumption is that this is something that's been... He suffered from for years, being in the Ecuadorian embassy. I guess he didn't have any form of society there. Well... The, the bitter truth is that the Crown Prosecuting Service of the United Kingdom in conjunction with the Swedish Prosecuting Authority and the Colonial Foreign Office made every effort to keep Julian in the embassy for as long as possible. This is revealed in the FOIs wherein in 2013 the Swedish Prosecuting Authority wanted to throw in the towel this Crown Prosecuting Service under Paul Close wrote back saying, you're not getting cold feet, are you? There's more to this than a simple extradition. So we have documentary evidence of their participation in keeping Julian in the embassy. I remind you that Julian and his lawyers fought two cases to force the Swedish prosecuting authority to bring the case forward as is required in their regulations. Eventually, the appeal court of Sweden ordered the prosecutor to interview Julian in the embassy, which was done and the case was dropped. There have been four prosecutors. The case has been dropped three times it's been nine years, uh, and it only took eight years to put a man on the moon. It's an appalling. There's a preliminary investigation of allegations taking nine years and, and dropped three times during that nine years. To, to strategically to keep him in the Ecuadorian embassy as long as possible, was this to break down his mental health, to test his... Well, it was a determination to ruin, destroy Julian, 
and it continues to this day. Julian is in a maximum, he's a, a, on remand, that is, he's innocent. He's in a maximum security prison, wherein you have to go through a procedure to visit. He's allowed only two visits a week. Previous to that, he was only allowed two visits a month. Julian has no access to media. All of his moves in the prison are controlled moves. The last uh, visit to court, in, when the hearing began, after it was finished, Julian was put in five different holding cells, handcuffed nine times, three times strip-searched and dispossessed of his court papers. A complaint received the answer that this is normal practice. And I presume it was normal practice in desperate places like Nazi Germany. But it ought not to be normal practice in the United Kingdom. So it's a deliberate effort to isolate Julian from his support and continue the ceaseless psychological torture that Nils Melser, the rapporteur on, on torture from the United Nations, has documented and submitted to the Swedish Prosecuting Authority and the Crown Prosecuting Service. You get to talk to Julian, I'm assuming, and I'm assuming you get to see him. How has his mental health changed over the years? And is he able to do anything to protect himself? Uh, you know, because I listened to two interviews with him on the way down to here, just to hear him again, and they're old interviews. And he was very articulate. He's very detailed in his responses to the questions. How is he now? Um, well, he's fighting for his life, mm -hmm. so it tends to focus the mind on your immediate problems. However, nine years of isolation and increasing trajectory and intensity of psychological torture, this is documented by two experts on psychological torture, doctors and, and Nils Melzer, an expert, take their toll both physically and mentally. And it takes a long, long while to recover. The Crown Prosecuting Service and the Colonial Foreign Office are only interested in one thing, expediency, with, within their relationship with the United States Department of Justice. And that expediency in no way considers the human rights of Julian Assange or the ordinary due process regulations that govern those two institutions. They're just not interested. What they're interested in the, is the expediency of their relationship with the United States and the Justice Department in Washington.
what is it, John, like for you being the, the father of Julian? And, and how do you see him as a human? You know, somebody like myself would see him as somebody who's influenced the world, changed the world, influenced how we see the behavior of the state, uh, some of the agrarian things that happened that we weren't previously aware of. I wouldn't say with a perfect track record, but a very interesting track record and, and somebody I hold in, for many reasons in high regard. But but you're his father. <laughs> How do you see him in this world and what is it like for you being his father going through this experience? Oh, you know, Julian, Julian is a sweet-natured man, you know, and funny. Also has this capacity to be able to give you information without sounding like he's lecturing you, you know. It, he simplifies it and it becomes... It feels a, a mutual effort, even though he's, you know, outlining something that he knows well. So it's a, it's a lovely method of teaching, um, very attractive that you, you don't feel you're you're being lectured. He's no longer funny, but now, he will laugh at wry jokes, and. Uh, He's prematurely aged and lost about 15 kilos. His weight is stabilised now, fortunately. So these, what it's like for me, well, you know, very proud of Julian. And the tremendous gift. So without information, without facts, without knowing where the sun comes up and goes down again, we're pretty lost. And without having facts to chat amongst ourselves and filter out actuality, we're pretty lost. So Julian and WikiLeaks have given to us access to materials that will show us what sordid deals that our government has made with other governments, who is likely to betray us, where the murders taken place, who did them. So we can see... Uh, I'll give you some good examples, just they're short. The Chagos Islanders were dispossessed and taken to Mauritius, dumped there, all of them, in order that the UK government give land, an island, to the United States to build an air force base called Diego Garcia with the information in the cables which is searchable on the WikiLeaks site, the Chagos Islanders were able to take a case before the International Court of Justice and win. There are a good few examples of this where cables or information on WikiLeaks has been used in cases up to the Supreme Court level in the United Kingdom. Very, very important gift. It allows us to know the geopolitical disposition, disposition of the world and how it came about. 
very important if you're going to make any decisions whatsoever for yourself and your family and your community. So I, I, I'm full of admiration for the, the access to those great profound gifts. So that's my position, you know. And, um, I, yeah, I admire Julian immensely and the group that he works with equally. But as his father, you know, you've watched him be put through quite an experience this last few years. And uh, as a very minor example, I, I mentioned before we start, I just started, I've just been out to Venezuela and when I told my father, he, he didn't want me to go. He just said, don't go, it's not worth it, it's not worth the risk. Are there at times where you've wished Julian would act differently or has it come to be the situation where you have had to let him go and make his own decisions? Oh, I never... My family doesn't uh, involve themselves with each other in that way. I, I don't... We don't give each other advice. We just relate how life experiences affected us. Uh, and if you... Whatever adventure you... Well, within moral grounds, whatever adventure you embark upon, you have... We support each other. So, to illustrate, none of the men, other than Julian's brothers or half-brothers or Julian, have ever complained to me about their circumstance, even if they've been in pretty bad circumstances like Julian or some other, like Gabrielle. Not once. Not even, not even last Christmas. It, the last Christmas when Julian was, you know, quite mm, isolated, completely isolated in the embassy. No complaint. We sat down and had Christmas dinner together and uh, as usual uh, we gossip about our children and uh, their mothers and friends and so on. So the warmth of ordinary human relationships is what fills most of uh, our conversation. And then after that we speak about practical matters, you know, where I'm going next or um, who I could see to advance his case. You must worry for him, though. Uh, well, you know, when this is <laughs> when you'll probably have the experience yourself. When you have children, you begin your worries, and, uh, and they don't stop. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. yeah. So I have. I mean, I've got a fifteen-year-old son and oh, well. a nine-year-old daughter, and I was chatting to my dad about this because. When I was, uh, I was about 10 and my dad was 40, I saw this big, grown man that I looked up to. And now I'm 40 and I don't feel like I am that big, grown man. <laughs> I still feel like my dad is. And I said that to my dad. And he said, look, the funny thing is, you never stop parenting because, Peter, I'm always 30 years ahead of you. So wherever you're at, I've had 30 years more experience. So you're always going to be coming to me. And he, he made that point to me. And I guess... Do you have that relationship? Does Julian come to you for advice still? No, never. Beyond that. No, none of, uh, none of uh, my children uh, come to me for advice or if I'm tempted by vanity to give advice, they put a straight halt 
to that. <laughs> Just referring back to when you've talked about the information that Julian's made publicly available, um, some people have criticised certain information that was made public uh, under the name of uh, journalism, that the release of certain people's names and such it was highly risky and it revealed sources that maybe shouldn't have been. That's one of the main criticisms I've seen of Julian and yeah. you know I, I go back and forth with this but the question I'm really coming to is within the the sphere of the activity that Julian's been involved in do you ever believe that a line has been crossed or do you think there is a rule of law that that needs respecting in certain areas that maybe hasn't been? Well specific to what uh, WikiLeaks and Julian have done and so the criticism that you mentioned is a really good question. It was answered uh, comprehensively in the second day of hearing in the court recently by the defence. That in the first place, the cables were being redacted and examined with Julian in cooperation with 90 other media organisations and the State Department and the Americans. The data, the dumping of the entire cache of the cables came about when a man named David Lee and Luke Harding published a book with the passphrase as the heading of a chapter and in the index, the password was referenced. A betrayal of declaration by David Lee, who received the passphrase under a promise that he would only use it for the Guardian newspaper, but he immediately passed it on to the New York Times. I mean, he's just... Uh, squalid, unfortunately now retired. Um, so the passphrase being out there was picked up by a German newspaper, Der Tag, and then Der Spiegel, and finally Kryptone, a secrecy anti-secrecy organisation based in New York. The cables were published, the cache in its entirety, by Kryptone. Julian, meanwhile, had rung the State Department and said they're out there, that uh, they've been released by, the passphrase has been released by Lee and they're out there. But the, the his warnings were ignored. It's just a gross lie. The other day I was questioned on this mm -hmm. by a person who quoted uh, some officials from the United States saying that this had endangered sources and so on. I pointed out to them that it's uh, simply a lie. WikiLeaks and Julian didn't release the cache. I also pointed out that it's nauseating, beyond obscene, grotesque, that these officials 
who have involved themselves in the supervision of the destruction of Iraq and seven other countries, but let's say just Iraq, the murder of a million or so people, poor things, criticise falsely Julian. It's just so grotesque. Who's been locked up for ten years and the, what he could pick up was a pencil or press a key on the computer. It's beyond grotesque. It is, it, the language, the English language, it will, in my capacity of it, can't stretch far enough to put those two things together. A man who, handling a pencil, locked up for nine years, criticised and accused of maybe committing a crime by people who have committed war crimes and destroyed entire countries. Just like, how do you cope with that sort of stuff from these people who... How do they actually get jobs, these demoralised robots that uh, wander around the Washington Beltway and get their utterances into the television stations to deceive and lie. It's just beyond grotesque. You obviously have a, a long history of disdain for governments and politicians and the powers that be. Oh, I, I want to correct that if okay. I may. I, don't, do, yeah. I understand organisations. I understand that they can be fresh, clean and attend to their legislation carefully and accurately. I understand that that is a possibility and I insist in my work or agitation that that happens but that we are now in a period of astonishing corruption. There is a... The City of London holds in trust in six offshore tax havens, the equivalent in private money of the entirety of the continent of Africa's public debt. More money than the entirety of the, from Af, sourced from Africa in semi-private accounts, you know. The facilitation of crime for the profit of the City of London. It's just nauseating. And there are laws to prevent this. Plenty of laws that can be applied, but they're just not applied. So we are embroiled in an error of astonishing corruption. The treatment of Julian is one example, or sorry, an icon of that corruption, of administration, of regulations and laws. It sounds as though, you know, we are in a 
you know, I'm describing sort of a, a hell on earth, really. <laughs> I don't want to um, bring despair to anybody. It, just that this is the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And you find fermentation throughout the entire world to resist it and governments overthrown and the people, uh, uh, social democrat parties everywhere throughout the world are rejected because they're not any longer social democrat parties. Um, the right is the populist parties rise up to attempt to right this situation. Sometimes they're sincere, other times they're not. But you can, this fermentation will produce the changes that are required because under the current circumstances, the societies will become like France, uh, ungovernable. Why do you think we've got to this stage of, you referred to, I think twice, astonishing levels of corruption? Do you think this is just a, a fault of human nature and we've lost the checks and balances? Well, uh, well you know, human nature is pretty variable and uh, it adopts, it has to adapt and adopt to circumstances that it finds itself in. But um, I, I think, uh, I feel that things are in cycles, you know, that but the cycles are very broad um, and the, the, the repair process uh, ha has started. Uh, like over the last uh, 10 years, the United States has, with its vassals, including the United Kingdom, has rewritten all of its extradition treaties to the advantage of the United States. So the United States doesn't allow uh, extradition for political offences, but it, um, that's because uh, it attracts and calls into itself activists who can destable or work against the current government in a, in a, a state that they currently don't like. So this is, enables the harvesting from by judicial abduction of journalists, publishers and publications on one avenue, the other avenue of technicians, Meng Wenzhou of Huey, Mike Lynch of the United Kingdom, ITB in it, and Olabini in Ecuador, uh, an internet genius. The other avenue is the Tuesday kill list, as it was known other, under Obama, 446 people extrajudicially murdered over Obama's regime. It's still in use, the murder of Soleimani the other day, invited to a peace conference and then murdered with seven other men. So these are means of disciplining vassal states that the United States uses. Also, th this is an area that I'm not completely familiar with, but the trade agreements 
under the TPP require that national laws be subject or surrender to trade agreements with between corporations. So a corporation may have a, a subsidiary in France, but its origin, origin is in the United States. If France makes a law, as Mexico did, that Coca-Cola has too much sugar in it and can't be sold above a certain amount of sugar, the corporation can launch an action against the government to its own benefit and have the, the nation state fined. Uh, I think from memory, Coca-Cola launched such an action against the Mexican government and won $80 million, even though the nation of Mexico was intent upon the collective health of the people of Mexico. So these three great avenues, the repression of publications, the harvesting of technology, the murder of those that they don't like extrajudicially, and the enforcing of corporate agreements over and above national preferences. So you brought up Soleimani there, a very interesting point. Uh, he was essentially assassinated. Um, I followed a lot of the coverage of that as well. You know, a man himself who also has many critics has facilitated, We could, you could argue, uh, destabilising force in the Middle East as well. Um, do you ever see scenarios where intervention is right, is justified... Um, an example I would give would possibly be when Vietnam went into Cambodia, which felt like to me a situation where that would have been a justified situation. It's more of a broader question. Do you, do you see a need in, in the world we live in to have a military? And do you think there are situations where, there, where it's justified to go in and intervene? Or do you believe that every single nation should be sovereign and it's down to the people of their country. Well, it, with internal affairs, of course it's down to the people within the country, within the nation, state. Yeah, that's very important. It was established in Germany a few hundred years ago after the Thirty Years' War. Very important. You've got to make your own decisions and look after your people, you know, and foster your culture so on. And then arrangements between nations are governed by their interests and as a collective group they make laws of how to go about furthering their interests in civilised discourse. There are at times when disputes because of history or or because of phenomena that we don't understand, or because of mm, agitations that rocket through an entire society, that those laws and regulations 
become disused. But we have set up the United Nations in order to make, for the most part, civilised discourse. And for the most part, you could see these mechanisms work. If you had SALT two, had SALT one, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties, and many other uh, treaty treaties that you know govern uh, relationships between states. Very important, vital, in fact. But do you think there are scenarios where intervention is justified? Well, if it's uh, under the auspices of the United Nations, uh, I imagine that uh, intervention can come about, yes. But it must be a collective, a collective decision of the of the of the the nation states representing the people, all uh, assisting in writing a a heinous situation. I sometimes feel myself following the United Nations that the. The structure of the permanent members' voting rights on the Security Council almost makes it impossible for certain decisions to be made because we often see it's usually a Russia versus United States opinion on it doesn't matter whether we're what part of the world we're looking at, and it feels like it's ineffective now in making decisions because of that. Do you share those frustrations or does it not worry you? No, you know, it's a human construction. It's not perfect, but it's better than not being. Pretty clear. It's better than it not being. Okay. It's better that they go and argue the toss there than use uh, atom bombs or mm. whatever, launch another invasion, whatever, although the United States probably can never launch another invasion. And and Russia can't project power. It just has its own area that it can look after successfully. Um, I mean, just to look, I, I like the statement. Yet, if you want peace, be prepared to fight. And secondly, Heraclitus's observation, or Heraclitus, if you want, uh, war is the mother of all things. Now that doesn't necessarily mean fighting your neighbouring state. What it means is that the battle within is war, to settle parts of the soul or to learn patience or to learn faith in life or to learn uh, how to order your affairs so that you don't have unnecessary conflict with others, all of those very difficult things, particularly patience and particularly faith in life. They are uh, internal wars and they'll be the mother of how to approach difficulties in life and how to love your friends and family more deeply. Just, just soaking that one up. Just going to revert back to Julian because that's what we're here about. Yes. Um, has Julian 
changed your worldview or your opinion significantly? Has anything he's done shifted your worldview or significantly affected your opinion on anything? Well, yes. Uh, I, I was, you know, like Trafigura um, dumping e-waste off the coast of Africa, the east coast of Africa, and the consequence, the coastal villages uh, are suffering from environmental poison was mm, struck me as a just well you can't go lower than that so I, I didn't up to that stage think that people would embark upon that sort of foul venture and what has happened to Julian uh, has changed my expectations from government. Yeah, I, I, the government will only obey its own regulations if we absolutely insist they do. As, a, as a citizens, we have to, we are now forced to absolutely insist that they obey their own regulations and forego the privilege of disobeying their own regulations. Of course, it's a privilege that states like, you know. And I guess you, here you're referring to the, the UK governments. Well, well, all of them, really. You know, my own government. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, the Australian hmm. government is... Uh, you know, one of the things you have when you work in the world of Bitcoin is you have this eye on that kind of dystopian Orwellian future... That seems to be playing out, and I've observed in Australia the attacks on the free press, and just many other things, which I find very surprising for for knowing Australians, <laughs> having met Australians in my life, to see the path that's going down. But it, it is something that's playing out. I find in most Western countries, uh, the UK, I'm very concerned about infringements on our civil, civil liberties, the use of surveillance technology, the attack on free speech. It. I feel like we're heading down a very, very bad path here. But specifically in reference to Julian, what are the things that the UK government are not being held to? And people listening to this, what should they be concerned about? Well, well, you know, Julian has done, is a innocent, you know, like it been. So the working, the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention made a, a declaration that Julian was arbitrarily detained in the United Kingdom and that Julian ought to be able to travel across the United Kingdom land to take up the asylum that Ecuador had offered, which the United Kingdom refused. In February 2018, they brought out a supplementary report in even firmer language. The the uh, United Kingdom appealed and the appeal failed. So that's one. The next is the rapporteur on torture, Nils Melzer's report, describing one after the other after the other the due process 
misfeasances, malfeasances, distortions, the involvement of the Crown Prosecuting Service with the Swedish Prosecuting Authority in a conspiracy documented by FOIs to keep Julian banged up in the Ecuadorian embassy forever or until he had to be carried out on a litter. These are deliberate, absolutely deliberate distortions now, the great, it's a magnificent gift the English peoples made to world civilization was the law as a shield between the people and the sovereign. It works both ways. The sovereign or the state has to obey the law and the people have to obey the law. That arrangement is a tremendous gift to the world to all civilisation, civilizational gift par excellence. That gift is progressively being disregarded and we as people, as citizens, are required to insist that our elites obey that fundamental relationship between the state and the people. The law is a shield. Now, in the case of Julian and others, that shield has been turned as into a weapon against people. So this is what we must rectify. Very simple thing. The other day in court, the Magna Carta was quoted. It's 790 years old, I think. It was quoted as a... a an instrument still in force, it still has the force of law. So we must insist that the government, our governments, obey this. That's, their, that's what they are required to do. The other thing, which is a bit more difficult, but is our secret services are there to ensure that excess, or well, one of their duties and obligations is to ensure that excessive leverage is not placed against parliamentarians and cabinet members. But they seem to have turned it on its head and use, in many circumstances, excessive leverage to embarrass or to manipulate parliaments and civil servants and governments. So we have to begin, well, sorry, I don't like the word have to, but we are required as citizens to insist that our secret services protect our members of government, our elites, from excessive leverage, from the human mistakes that we all make, our secret services, have to ask that they resign and protect them from excessive leverage by others who are in possession of that sort of information. So those two elements are really important. The Magna Carta is still exists. It's still a living document. It's still enshrined in the laws of the United Kingdom. It is a shield, a substantial protection, a great civilizational gift 
that protects the people from the sovereign and orders the sovereign to obey those laws and orders the people to similarly obey those laws. We are required to simply say to our governments, well, those are the laws that you exist under and we want you to obey them. Okay. Could you update us on the current legal position? We've obviously had the first stage of the extradition hearings. Can you talk me through what happened and where we are currently? On the first day, the prosecution outlined, stated that it was a simple case of criminality, that there was no political reasons, there's no no political circumstance because it's in the treaty that you, you know, if it's a political matter you can't be extradited. So they insist it was just common criminal. And uh, they also insisted an oddity that uh, because the 2003 treaty between the United States and United Kingdom ratified in 2007 didn't contain the wording no extradition for political reasons, that the parliament consequently didn't want that, which is very difficult. You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense um, because a ratification of a treaty has to blend with uh, local laws within the laws of the United Kingdom. So it just simply doesn't make sense. So those two elements are the... Uh, oh, and also, of course, they trotted out that stuff again, how the data, what they call the data dumping, endangered sources. It's ridiculous because uh, um, Robert Gates, uh, in testimony before Congress, Ex-Secretary of Defence stated that, uh, is it embarrassing? Yes. Is it awkward? Yes. Did it cause us any damage? No. And there are many other such statements. So the American case is a fraud against the court, a complete fraud. No foundations in any direction. The surrender last week of the United States to the Taliban, not even a state instrumentality in Doha signing a peace treaty, an 18-year-long war that, that everybody knew was failing in 2010 when the WikiLeaks released the Iraq war files, failing in 2010, they signed a peace treaty with the Taliban, not even a state instrumentality of Afghanistan, leaving out of the negotiations the Afghani government, the current Afghani government, mostly extraordinary, <laughs> like sort of a farce really. But we can see how, if I can describe this carefully, in 2010 the Afghan war files were released. They're in searchable forms. 
slowly, from 2010 onward, the smartphone and the laptop became common to everybody. So you can search. So the permutation of the technology, and sorry, the filtering in of the technology and the permutation of the facts in the Iraq war file and the unfolding of history, the continuing unfolding of history, allowed it to become common knowledge that the Iraq, the Afghan war was a failure, that there was no possibility of the United States and, and NATO rebuilding Iraq. It's just impossible. So it's become common. So the historical resistance to the ongoing participation in the Afghan war becomes an attribute of the presidential election race. So Mr. Trump seeks a way out of Afghanistan. So this is a, I think I've described that fairly clearly, that WikiLeaks releasing, and Chelsea and Julian, releasing the Afghan war files, the increase in the use of the internet and its facilities, the passing of further history showing more murders of wedding parties and funeral cortege have clearly demonstrated to all of us in a historical fashion that it's over, that it's time to go, that it was never a good thing in the first place. So this is a magnificent gift of WikiLeaks and the engineering marvel of the internet and the unfolding of history have begun to bring to an end an unnecessary involvement of the United States and its government in the destruction of Afghanistan. Okay, so... Answer that one. Well, <laughs> so it comes to that point that if all information is free, we have a better way to judge the world and judge the decision-making. Like, it's the, the importance of transparency to see behind the... Duplicity. Duplicity, yes, of our leaders. I mean, one of the most fascinating ones was the release of the DNC emails and some mm -hmm. of the, the double dealings there. You know, it exposes or it holds people to uh, a higher standard if their communications and their behaviours are transparent. Well, the, you know, the crumbling facade of the, the Clinton Foundation where bit by bit, you know, the, it becomes transparent. Piece by piece we see these people for what they actually are and that Mrs Clinton ran around the world selling participation in decision-making for money and made decisions for, you know, donations to totaling $1.5 billion. The Australian government, uh, encouraged by an ex-foreign minister whose name uh, I like to forget, Alexander Downer, 
he encouraged the Australian government to give 25 million plus a bit more uh, to the Clinton Foundation. And then immediately Mr Trump was elected. Uh, that gift from the Australian government was cancelled. I, you know, these people, this uh, rotting facade of criminality that was the, that was the uh, Clinton Foundation and its relationship with the DNC um, is a, I mean, it's a, a crippling burden upon the American body politic, in my view. Yeah. You also mentioned Trump. One of the most fascinating things that came out of the extradition hearings for me was that President Trump would offer Julian a pardon if he said that Russia had nothing to do with the leaked Hillary emails. What is the background to this? Cause I, I don't know. I, I, that's as much as I know with Dana Robaka. Um, uh, but witness testimony will be... So you'll be able to hear the people who witnessed those offers at the uh, full hearing in May. But that's as much as I know. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll be looking out for that. So, so how much progress was made in this first set of hearings? And as we move on to... It's May, right, for the second yeah. round. Will we have a conclusion in May? Well, uh, yes. Uh, Judge Buritza has... Uh, given three more weeks for the hearing. I suppose it might run over a week. And then uh, uh, in, she will make, uh, judge, the judge will make her uh, decision. Uh, uh, the, the, the case is really, uh, Julian's case is very, very strong. It's, a, it's an insurmountable burden for the prosecutor. Um, having looked at both sides very carefully. Uh, so I imagine uh, that uh, Judge Baritza will uh, decide, dependent upon certain circumstances, that Julian not be extradited. You're very confident? Uh, well, based on the case. Ah, but, but are you confident that there isn't untoward pressure coming from other directions into her decision? Well, I'm sure that... I'm certain that aspects of the Colonial and Foreign Office and the Crown Prosecuting Service would be chagrined deeply if uh, Vanessa Baritza decides not to extradite Julian. But the law is the law, and I'm sure... I feel certain that uh, with the intensity of observers all over Europe, the intensity of observation by observers all over Europe and the political circumstance where the government and Whitehall want to rewrite the extradition treaty because it's unbalanced. I feel certain if those circumstances are obeyed, Julian will be not extradited, will be free, yeah. It would certainly be a scar on the reputation of the United Kingdom, should well, you not? Yeah, look, just uh, this gives us an opportunity to have a look at something here. It's really interesting that it's in the interests of Europe, publishers, publications and journalists to ensure 
that Julian is not extradited. It's their interest because, uh, as we've mentioned, they will be intimidated to publish information and have information to discuss amongst ourselves as the ordinary way to go about doing things, the best ordinary way to go about doing things. Similarly, the United Kingdom has two profound areas to look at. One is that each year in the City of London about a trillion dollars worth of contracts are, are made and those contracts sometimes fall into dispute and they are adjudicated in the English courts. If the English courts get themselves a reputation similar to the Swedish prosecuting authority, who is going to write contracts in the City of London? Nobody. They'll hesitate all the time. That's one. The other profound area is that the conversations and knowledge of the English people, the, the, sorry, the people of the United Kingdom, it depends upon what's published in the newspapers and what's published on the internet. If that is constrained, then they're unable to make decisions in their own in their own interests. Their interests are subsumed into the preferences of Washington, a most unreliable circumstance. Everybody knows that Washington is not agreement capable. They can't make agreements that are, are mutual, that serve mutual interests. So in order to pursue your own interests, you just simply have to say no. That's all. Julian won't be extradited and we will not have our publications and publishers intimidated by the fear of being judicially kidnapped or abducted. So assuming, let's make a, a confident assumption that Julian uh, wins his case and he is freed, will he ever really be a free man? Because my assumption is he's always going to be pursued again and again because I can't see him ever stopping doing his work for WikiLeaks. Right now, obviously, he's... I, I don't know any ability he has to have any oversight of the work of WikiLeaks right now, but my assumption is is on release from prison he would want to get straight back to work. I mean, you might tell me I'm wrong, but well, does he face a a life of this, you know, these attacks by state bodies forever? Oh, you know, well, from a father's point of view, uh, Julian has made his gift, has made his name, has shown his capacities. It's now time for him to rest and recuperate, which will take a couple of years. Uh-huh. And uh, I hope that, you know, after, say, for example, taking up the humanitarian visa offered by Switzerland, who specialise in, uh, is offered by Geneva Canton, whose special, their speciality is in treating people who have undergone psychological torture taking up that humanitarian visa, getting well again, doing ordinary things of life like seeing the kids, attending birthday parties, just sitting in a cafe watching the passing parade, chatting a bit of gossip here and there, 
indulging curiosity again rather than constantly having to focus on this, that and the other to protect your life. Just ordinary things. And then as a father, I hope he, uh, I imagine a professorship of some sort for five years might be very satisfying. How do you think Julian will be seen in future years? How will people look back on him? Do you think he will be ultimately seen as a hero or do you think he will always split opinion? There'll be those who see him as a hero and others that maybe still see him as a villain. Well, that question is a good question that allows us to develop some insights. The first thing is that the smearing and mobbing of Julian has been a deliberate policy of the nation-states of the West, particularly the English-speaking world, in particular the English-speaking world. And that has been done in order that the crimes... So, for example, in collateral murder, you see the helicopter pilots. Of course, yeah. Two war crimes, not just one. Do you know that the first... What was the second one that was worse, when he was crawling and uh, went to pick him up with the van, yeah. And the two kids, the two children in the van. um, Yeah, so that is the proper focus, is the war crimes. But authorities have changed the focus onto whether Julian is this or that. And that smearing and mobbing is progressively losing its force as it emerges and fully emerges in the testimony in court and elsewhere of what actually happened. So Julian will be seen for what he did and that is give these gifts to us to utilise in whatever fashion our energies and curiosity and tasks allow. Though I, for my part, I think Julian will be amongst the proper nobility of the West. The proper nobility, not inherited nobility, but the be. an aristocracy of the spirit, which will include Julian and many others who have fought to bring righteousness and truth and good governance. I think that is a very good place to conclude this. Um, But I will just ask, just finally, if people are interested in the case and want to find out more, want to support... Julian or yourself, how could they do that? Well, my thing, you know, we've run Assange campaign, Assange campaign, one word, dot org, dot au. But there was also campaigns in, in, localised in England and that's called DEA. Um, I'll... I'll text... Uh, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll, I'll text Peter. The, well, I can't remember it, actually. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Peter. No, no worries. Look, I've really enjoyed this. Um, I wish you luck. Uh, I will 
uh, play close attention in May. Um, I hope you get the outcome you desire. Um, I have... Uh, I hold hope. I'd love to do this again with you sometime, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. I hope, Peter, that you do. And look, register as a journo. If you can't register as a journo, come and give me a tap on the shoulder and I'll find one of the family seats for you. Please do. Yeah, I, I, I would love to. I need to register as a journo anyway. I um, nearly got arrested when I was just out in Turkey. I went up to the Greece border, and but on the way we got pulled over by the police. And they wanted um, credentials of being a journalist, and I didn't have them. Luckily, my camera camera guy did. Um, but I need to actually get registered now to protect yeah, myself because yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm doing some lunatic things without really thinking them through. No, it will come along. It it's, uh, you know, I can't say how vital it is that you guys put in an appearance. No, I, I will do. But I appreciate your time. But I would love to talk to you. I've got things I want to talk to you about outside of Julian. I okay. want to pick your brain. So hopefully we, uh, sometime later in the year we could do that. Uh, just give me a ring and I'm here. Great, thank you. Well, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview with John as much as I did. It's a fascinating interview, a fascinating person. And at some point, I would actually like just to interview him himself about his own views on the world right now. I think he has some fascinating insights. But as he said to me right now, he's trying to secure the release of Julian. And therefore, that is what dominated the majority of the interview. But yes, really enjoyed it. Uh, John is fascinating. It's it's an incredibly important story to cover. And some I'm going to continue covering in the future and hopefully uh, I'm planning on being at Julian's hearing in May so hopefully I will have some follow-up interviews in relation to the case any questions you can reach out to me my email address is peter at defiance.news before we close out I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken the best place to buy Bitcoin consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy sell and trade Bitcoin you can find out more at kraken.com which is k-r-a-k-e-n.com Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.